I am not a fan of jigsaw puzzles. Admittedly, I don't have the patience to put them together, and I am easily distracted by the shapes of the various puzzle pieces. So eventually I lose sight of the big picture, and then I get frustrated trying to jam the pieces in where they really don't fit. Many people have a similar problem with the Bible. Why do we need to stop and see the big picture? Why can't we just get to the signs of the end? What should we expect to happen before the Lord's return? What about the Antichrist? What about Israel? What about the seven-year tribulation period? What about a millennium? Why not just get to the good stuff? To read the Bible like this is to spend all of your time looking at the puzzle pieces without knowing what the picture on the box top of the puzzle actually looks like. The Bible's expectation for the future, which is the box top, tells us how the puzzle pieces fit together. If we skip big picture stuff, we can easily fall into the errors which so many of our contemporaries make. We make predictions about the end with no way to connect the signs of the end to the biblical context in which those signs actually make sense. When we spend time looking at the box top of redemptive history, we should be surprised by what we don't see. We don't see the Antichrist, or Israel, or a millennium. We don't see any of those things near the center of the picture. They're in the picture, but they're not near the center. What do we see? Or better, who? We see Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new and better covenant. He is the central figure we find on the box top. And since Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, the pictures tell us that Jesus will return to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. His return is our expectation. It's the blessed hope. We cannot successfully discuss nor truly understand the signs of the end apart from being clear in our own minds about the big picture. We can't understand the Antichrist if we don't understand the Christ. We can't understand the role of Israel if we attempt to talk about Israel apart from the true Israel, who is Jesus. We might expect an earthly millennial age if we don't see our Lord's return as the final consummation, not some halfway step on the way to consummation. When we glimpse the picture of Jesus on the biblical box top, it is immediately clear that he is the sum and substance of all biblical prophecy. Jesus is the center of the picture, which ensures the realization of all of God's covenant blessings for his people, as well as the meeting out of all the covenant curses, upon those who reject his grace and mercy because they prefer to remain in their sins. All of the signs of the end point to those things which occur on the last day. When the trumpet sounds, the heavens roll up like a scroll, and Jesus returns exactly as he promised to do. The signs of the end point us to this glorious day when time becomes eternity. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, and in this episode of The Future, we'll look at the box top of redemptive history. How do the two eschatological ages, this age and the age to come, as well as the kingdom of God present but not yet consummated, 
along with all the various covenants we find throughout the Bible, how does all of that fit together? How does a focus upon Jesus as the sum and substance of biblical prophecy help us better understand the signs of the end? This is the fourth episode in our Blessed Hope podcast series, The Future, and we will discuss the biblical covenants and the blessing curse principle as yet another vital category to shape our expectations about the future. In the two previous episodes of our series, The Future, that would be episodes two and three, I made the case that the two-age model serves as an important interpretive grid for New Testament eschatology, and that the present reality of the kingdom of God defines both our expectations for the future, as well as giving us the context in which we should discuss and understand the signs of the end. When we talk about the future and what remains to be fulfilled before our Lord returns, we are talking about the transition from time to eternity and the final consummation of Jesus Christ's present kingdom. But there is yet another fundamental biblical category in which the kingdom of God is made manifest throughout the course of redemptive history, and that is the two covenants which the Reformed identify as the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. These two covenants run in parallel throughout Scripture, from the moment of Adam's creation in Eden until the concluding verses of the book of Revelation. It is in the fulfillment of the terms of these covenants that the critical promises for the future and our Lord's return are best understood, which is the full and final realization of the blessing-curse principle. Throughout the course of redemptive history, God promises blessings to his people, and those blessings are often framed in covenantal terms. These blessings come upon the condition of full and perfect obedience, while covenant curses are threatened for even the slightest degree of disobedience. James 2.10 comes to mind. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. God demands absolute obedience in thought, word, and deed to his commandments, his law, and unless his creatures possess such obedience, they will perish eternally. The final exam for eternal life will not be graded on a curve. It's pass-fail, perfect obedience, or covenant curse. If this age gives way to the age to come, and the temporal gives way to the eternal, and the kingdom of God will be consummated, who among us will receive the blessing of eternal life, and who among us will not? When we speak of the future, we are speaking of heaven and hell, are we not? And when we speak of heaven and hell, are we not thinking of Jesus as Savior or Judge? Is not Jesus and the scarlet thread of redemption revealed throughout all the Bible from the beginning of the end until our Lord's return? Is his work perhaps best understood as mediator of a new and better covenant as Jeremiah prophesied and as the book of Hebrews tells us is fulfilled in Jesus Christ? There are millenarians of many stripes. But Reformed Amillenarians contend that from beginning to end, God relates to us 
and redeems us through two primary biblical covenants, the covenant of works, or the covenant of creation, and the covenant of grace. Now, critics contend we're forcing these covenants upon the Bible, and that so-called federal theology downplays the different periods in redemptive history, as well as the role of Israel in the end times. So, it's important to stop now and ask and answer the question, how do these two covenants relate to biblical eschatology and to the signs of the end? Reformed theologians start with an important operating assumption, which needs to be kept in mind as we proceed. God is an infinite spiritual being who remains unknown to us, he is said to be transcendent, unless and until he chooses to reveal himself. Thankfully, he does so in nature and in the scriptures, supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of all biblical prophecy. The mode of Jesus' revelation and type and shadow in the Old Testament, and then in the fullness of time when the Messianic age dawns in the New Testament era, Galatians 4, 4-6 speaks of that, that revelation is covenantal, and it repeatedly points us to the fact that all of biblical eschatology centers upon the person, work, and return of Jesus, not the nation of Israel when viewed apart from Christ. When we trace out the course of redemptive history, it becomes clear from New Testament hindsight that Jesus is the true Israel. In fact, he is the true temple. And that's why all millenarians see any focus upon the nation of Israel and a rebuilt temple as central points of future expectation We see that as a serious misstep, a misreading of the course of redemptive history, because both the land of Israel and the temple, the center of sacrifice, all that pointed forward to Jesus and all those images are fulfilled in him. Since redemption was promised the moment Adam sinned back in Genesis 3.15, Adam's time in Eden points us to a final consummation, a new heaven and a new earth, not merely an Eden regained and that the historical person of Adam points us to a second Adam, in whose image all redeemed sinners will be conformed. The opening chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, tell us as much about the end as they do the beginning. Thus the famous Reformed slogan, eschatology, study of end times, precedes soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. The promise actually precedes its full realization. And so the drama of redemption then is a panoramic vision extending from the creation of the world in the opening chapters of Genesis to our final redemption as depicted in Revelation chapter 22. And so the redemptive historical horizon, the box top, includes the past and the present as well as all future expectation. And so this tells us that what happens at the end fulfills what was promised in the past and can't be properly understood apart from the big picture of redemptive history. Because the Bible is thoroughly eschatological in its outlook, it's always looking forward to the end. We cannot separate what God has accomplished to save us in Jesus Christ from his return at the time of the end, when the already gives way to the not yet, when time becomes eternity. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ, the Redeemer of Israel, and the Mediator of God's covenant. And so the Old Testament prophets are continually looking ahead to the restoration of Israel. That's the Messianic age, and that's the gospel going out to the ends of the nations, 
And that's the period that ends with the day of the Lord or Judgment Day. And so the coming of this Redeemer and his promise to return yet a second time guarantees that even though the New Testament is grounded in the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises of restoration, all is not yet accomplished. There's a final chapter in the story, hence this series of the future. And there are signs that point to it, a chapter yet to be played out in the course of God's plan of redemption. And that becomes clear in Christ's resurrection, in his ascension, and then at Pentecost. Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to the Father's right hand. And from there, he now rules over all things, and he's poured out his Spirit upon all his people. These events tell us that the goal of redemptive history will be achieved every bit as certain as Christ's tomb was empty on that first Easter. Since risen and ascended, we now await the Savior's return to grant his people all of his promised blessings and to mete out all threatened covenant curses. And there we have the full realization of the blessing curse principle. Many Christians are the mistaken assumption that only limited sections of the scripture contain any reference to future things. And that outlook, in effect, limits eschatology to those issues related to the timing of the rapture, or to speculation about political events in the Middle East and Israel, as well as to the debate about the nature of Christ's millennial reign on the earth after his return. This produces the ironic situation in which those who speak about eschatology the most actually have the least to say. By limiting eschatology and Bible prophecy to the rapture in the millennium, and by tying Old Testament prophecies to literal future fulfillments, the place of Christ's role in redemptive history is eclipsed. He's the story from beginning to end. He tells us what the temple really means. He tells us the temple points to himself. He tells us that he is the true Israel of God. So, the story is his. When we step back then from the details of Bible prophecy and look carefully at the big picture, that picture is framed in terms of covenants. If we want to know what the future holds, then we have to gaze upon this entire panorama of redemption from a distance. We step back, we look at the big picture. And when we do, it's pretty clear the story begins with creation and the covenant of works. Then we move on to talk about the fall of the human race into sin, and that's the backdrop for redemptive history, the story of our redemption from sin. And redemptive history, therefore, is exactly what its name implies. It's the biblical account of God delivering his people from the guilt and power of sin that comes after the fall. And when we do that, we're talking now about the covenant of grace. And so as we look forward to see the final goal, it's clear the end isn't merely paradise regained. The final goal is paradise glorified, a new heaven and a new earth. As one writer points out, quoting, In very broad terms, the biblical sweep is from creation to the new creation by way of redemption, which is, in effect, the renewing of creation. And so, the renewal that began on Easter Sunday is going to continue until Christ returns. The new creation is dawn. It'll be consummated. It'll, it'll come to fruition. The sweeping vision is set out in the opening chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, which speak of creation and paradise while Genesis 3 speaks of the fall of our race into sin and paradise lost. 
From the moment paradise is lost, when Adam rebelled against God and brought down the threatened curse under the covenant of works, and that curse is sin and death, the curse is pronounced on our race. From that moment on, God is already promising final redemption. Passage we've already mentioned, Genesis 3.15. And so we don't have to wait until the end of the story to learn that God's mercy and justice will triumph over human sin and its consequences for the people of God. Even before the specific details in the drama of redemptive history begin to unfold, the outcome is already certain. God has decreed that he will redeem his people from their sin, and that one day he will renew all of his creation. And when all is said and done, there will remain no hint or trace of the stain of sin. No longer will there be any curse. In order to understand Christ's role in biblical prophecy, then we have to understand something about the various covenants which are found throughout both Testaments. Covenants between kings or suzerains in the ancient world and their vassals or their servants form much of the basis of daily life in the ancient Near Eastern world, especially in matters legal and financial. That was certainly true for ancient Israel because from a biblical perspective, covenants take on an even greater importance in the Old Testament, since Israel's king, the suzerain, is the great king, and the nation of Israel is his chosen vassal because of his sovereign will. When considered in the context, then, of the Old Testament world, a covenant may be defined as a relationship under sanctions. In each of the Old Testament covenants, there are two parties involved, God and his people, or their divinely chosen representatives, such as Abraham or Moses. In these covenantal relationships, the two parties relate to each other in terms of blessing and curse, the outcome depending upon faithfulness to the terms set forth in the covenants. Like a contract of sorts, when the terms of the covenant are fulfilled, the servant, the the vassal, receives the blessing promised by the great king, the suzerain. But should the obligations of the covenant not be met, The covenant curse in the form of the previously declared sanctions between God and his people, well, that curse is imposed. The major covenants in the Old Testament take two basic forms, covenants of law and covenants of promise. In covenants of works or law, the people swear the oath of ratification. In covenants of promise or blessing, sometimes a royal grant where the king just, out of his goodness, gives his people something great and wonderful. In those covenants, God himself swears the covenant oath to fulfill all the terms and the conditions of that covenant. Perhaps the clearest illustration of a covenant of law is found in Exodus 24, which the people of God, not Yahweh, they swear the oath of ratification. According to the account we find in Exodus 24, Yahweh calls Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu along with 70 elders up on the Mount Sinai, where the group was to worship Yahweh from a distance. But Moses, the covenant mediator, anticipating the true mediator yet to come, Jesus Christ, he was to approach God alone. When Moses went and told the people all of the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord has said, Exodus 24, verse 7. 
Unlike the covenant of promise that God made with Abram, in covenants of works or law, such as the covenant ratified at Mount Sinai, God does not swear the oath of ratification. Rather, it's the people who do so. And so the covenant God made with Israel is ratified by his people, who, by swearing their obedience on oath, will receive the promised blessings of the Mosaic covenant if they obey, or the covenant curses if they disobey. And so the particular blessings and curses associated with the covenant are spelled out in Deuteronomy 27-30, through when the Sinai covenant is renewed with Israel on the plains of Moab. Additional evidence for the covenant works can be set out as follows. Hosea 6 verse 7 records the word of the Lord as, But like Adam, they, Israel and Judah, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so based upon this declaration, it's clear that Adam stood in a covenant relationship to his creator while in Eden, and that Adam had indeed violated the terms of that covenant through a personal and willful act of disobedience. In this declaration from Hosea, we find two very important elements of Christian theology as understood by Reformed millenarians. The first is that Adam was created in covenant relationship with God. This covenant was not arbitrarily imposed upon Adam after God created him. And second, Adam's willful violation of this covenant brought down horrible consequences on himself, as well as upon the entirety of the human race whom he represents and which is biologically descended from him. The covenant of works, also known as the covenant of creation, lies at the heart of the balance of redemptive history, both before and after Adam's fall into sin. It is important to acknowledge the presence of this covenant from the very beginning of human history for a whole number of reasons. Because Adam was created as a divine image bearer, he was therefore in a covenant relationship with his creator from the first moment of his existence. Because moral and rational creatures are by their very nature obligated to obey their creator. If Adam should disobey, the demands of this covenant, perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed, then Adam and all those whom he represents, the entire human race, are subject to the covenant curse, which is death. The presence of this covenant from the beginning of creation means that if Adam and his descendants are to be delivered from the consequences of their collective rebellion against God, then any deliverance from the curse will require God's saving grace and redemptive acts to remove the covenant curse and render Adam's fallen race righteous before God, just as Adam was righteous before his fall into sin. And so the covenant of grace, which Jesus serves as covenant mediator, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, that only makes sense against the backdrop of humanity's collective fall into sin and the resulting curse or death when Adam rebelled against his creator and broke the terms of the covenant of works. There's really no good news of a gospel without the bad news, the prior bad news of human sin. Although the term covenant of works doesn't appear in the creation account, all the elements of a covenant are clearly present in Eden. First, there are two parties, Adam and his creator, with God imposing the terms of this covenant upon Adam's descendants. 
Second, there's a condition set forth by God as spelled out in Genesis 2.17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Although this condition comes in the form of a specific prohibition, if you eat from the tree you'll die, it can also be restated as a positive theological principle that describes the essence of this covenant. Do this, that is, obey by not eating, and live. Third, there's a blessing promised upon perfect obedience. The blessing is eternal life, as well as a threatened curse, death for any act of disobedience. If Adam obeys his creator and does not eat from the tree, then he will receive God's promised blessing. He will be confirmed in eternal life. But should Adam eat from the tree as he did, then he and all those whom he represents, the entire human race, will come under the covenant curse, which is death. All three of these elements are present in the creation account. And in light of the declaration of Isaiah 6-7, there really can be little question that such a covenant exists and that it's founded upon a blessing-curse principle. And when we look at these three elements in more detail, we see they're not only elements of a covenant present in Eden, but that all of subsequent redemptive history will operate on this blessing-curse principle in which life is promised to Adam and his descendants upon the condition of perfect obedience to the commands of God in all their thinking, doing, and speech. And should Adam perfectly obey the terms of this covenant, God will reward him with eternal life. Adam will not live on as a mortal, but then Adam will be confirmed in righteousness and granted eternal life in the presence of God. But once Adam sinned and came under the covenant curse, such perfect and complete obedience was impossible for Adam or any of his descendants to render to the Lord. Indeed, it'll take a second Adam, Jesus Christ, to render such perfect and personal obedience on behalf of those whom he represents under the terms of the covenant of grace. And this Savior must not only perfectly obey all the commandments of God, he must also provide a suitable means through which the guilt of our sin in Adam, as well as the guilt which attaches to us because of our own sins, can be removed. Not only must the second Adam be perfectly obedient for us and in our place, he must also go to the cross, where he will suffer and die for our sins, thereby removing from us the curse which comes upon all of those who are the fallen children of Adam. The doing and dying of Jesus as recounted in the good news of the gospel, that only makes sense against the backdrop of the bad news, this broken covenant of works in which we all sin in Adam, but we're given eternal life under the terms of the covenant of grace through faith in Jesus, who is the mediator of that new and better covenant. Returning one more time to Israel's historical situation, the most prominent case of a covenant of promise or of grace is God's covenant with Abraham, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 15. It is God who sovereignly approaches Abram and swears on oath to him, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. As Abram falls into a deep sleep, he's given a vision of a smoking firepot passing through butchered halves of various animals, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. The implication of the vision is clear to 
someone like Abraham who is steeped in ancient covenants and rituals of ratification. If Yahweh fails to be Abram's great reward and shield, the covenant curse, which is graphically pictured by the severed animals, is to fall upon Yahweh himself, the one who swears the oath and initiates all of these covenant rituals. And that is, of course, what Yahweh does to remove the curse from us. He sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. When the dream ends, we're told, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 15. Notice that in this particular covenant which God makes with Abram, it is God who swears the oath of ratification, making this a covenant of promise. As is typical in such ancient covenants, the Lord also defines the boundaries, the geographic boundaries, within which the terms of the covenant will apply. This explains why the account of the ratification of this covenant in Genesis 15 includes the list of peoples who reside between the two great rivers, the Nile and the Euphrates. In fact, this promise of a land was gloriously fulfilled when Joshua led the people of God back into Canaan, according to the opening nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. And as Joshua puts it toward the end of his book, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he'd sworn to their forefathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. Joshua 21, 43 and 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. In the light of the backdrop then of these ancient covenants, it is correct to say that covenant theology is the center of Reformed theology. And in Eden, while still under the covenant of works, all of humanity fell when the first of our race, Adam, rebelled against his creator, plunging the entire human race into sin and death. And it will take a second Adam, Jesus Christ, to perfectly obey the commandments of God, so as to fulfill all righteousness, as we read in Matthew 3, verse 15. It will also require this second Adam to remove from us the guilt of our individual sins, as well as the guilt imputed to us from our first father in Adam's original sin, Romans 5, verses 12 through 19. But in order for the second Adam, Jesus, to accomplish these things, there must be a gracious covenant in which God sends Jesus, the covenant mediator, to do what's necessary to redeem us from the consequences of our sins and guilt. By earning a sufficient merit to provide us with a righteousness that can withstand God's holy gaze. And that brings us to a covenant of grace, in which all the requirements of the covenant of works and its demand for perfect obedience are fulfilled by the mediator of this covenant, the Lord Jesus. The covenant of grace is the historical outworking of an eternal covenant of redemption, the so-called covenant before the covenant, in which the members of the Holy Trinity decreed before time that Jesus was to be the Redeemer of those whom the Father had chosen in Him, and that Jesus would do this on behalf of, and in the place of, all those elect sinners chosen from before the foundation of the world. We find this in John 17, verses 4-10, and Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. God's saving grace is not directed to the world in general, making people savable if only they meet certain conditions. Faith is a work, I had faith, therefore I'm justified, repents, or good works. Rather, 
God's saving grace is directed to the specific individuals whom he intends to save through the person and work of Jesus. In this covenant of redemption, the Holy Spirit will apply the work of Christ to all those whom the Father has chosen and for whom the Son will die, ensuring that all of God's elect will come to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, which is the divinely appointed means by which God's elect are called to faith. As is the case with the covenant of works, the specific terminology covenant of grace does not appear in Scripture, although the rich and manifold theme of the covenant appears throughout the course of redemptive history. Yahweh is the great covenant-making king, and this lies at the heart of God's redemptive purposes and all of his relationships with humanity. As with the covenant of works, God is the author of this gracious covenant, and he imposes specific conditions upon Adam's fallen race. This covenant also includes the promise of eternal life, but is made on behalf of sinners by a gracious God who intends to save his elect from all of the consequences of Adam's sin through the work of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. In the covenant of grace, everything hinges on the sacrificial death and the perfect obedience of Jesus, who is the only mediator between a holy God and sinful humanity, and yet who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he's been tempted in all ways as we have, yet he alone is without sin. Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, and chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. While the condition of the original covenant of works was full and perfect personal obedience to the commandments of God, the condition of the covenant of grace is faith in Jesus Christ, who undoes the awful consequences of the fall. And we know that from Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, and 2 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. All the promises and benefits of this covenant are received through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in his person work on our behalf. And such faith is a gift from God. It's not a work that we must perform. The essence of this gracious covenant can be seen in the oft-repeated refrain, first found all the way back in Genesis 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. If we fast forward redemptive history to the final chapter, when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven on the last day, once again we hear these wonderful words recorded by John, which serve as the motto of the covenant of grace. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's from Revelation 21, verse 3. Yes, he is our God, and yes, we are his people through this gracious covenant, this covenant of grace. Therefore, redemptive history, which is the outworking in human history of God's eternal decree, is essentially the account of the unfolding of successive covenants which are the historical manifestations of the one covenant of grace, and indeed the historical manifestation of the kingdom of God. 
Immediately after the fall of our race into sin, God was already promising Adam that a Redeemer will come and rescue him and his progeny from the consequence of his sin. In Genesis 3.15, we find the first historical manifestation of the covenant of grace in the first promise of the gospel, the so-called Proto-Evangelion. No sooner had Adam sinned, the Lord pronounced the curse upon the devil. I will put M into it between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, Eve. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the very first gospel promise, God promises to crush the serpent and save his people. The coming mediator of the covenant of grace was now ensured. Jesus Christ will die on a cross to redeem us from our sins. And although this covenant of grace unfolds in several historical steps, the promise God made to Abram in Genesis 12 and 17, the promise God made to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, as well as renewing that covenant on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 29, the promise of an eternal kingdom made to David in 2 Samuel 7:14, followed by the prophecy of a new covenant made to Jeremiah in his prophecy, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, and that promise of a new covenant, which the author of Hebrews specifically applies to Jesus Christ, the covenant mediator in Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 13, that covenant is essentially the same throughout the course of redemptive history. And that can be seen in the very simple fact there is but one gospel in both Testaments, just as there is only one mediator, Jesus Christ. And the sole condition of the covenant of grace is faith in the mediator, faith in our Lord Jesus. God has promised to be our God. He declares that we are his people. And these covenant promises bookend redemptive history from the fall of our race into sin until the time of the end when Jesus returns to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new in which the blessing-curse principle is fully and finally realized. When we step back and look at the biblical box top, it becomes pretty clear that two biblical covenants run in parallel throughout the entire course of biblical history. These two covenants, one of works and one of grace, reveal a second Adam and a covenant mediator, Jesus, in whom all the covenant blessings and curses are ultimately realized. When we return from a short break, we will continue to look at the way in which the covenant of works and the covenant of grace shape biblical expectations for the future and give us the context in which to discuss the signs of the end. As always, show notes for this episode can be found at the Riddle blog. That's kimriddlebarger.com, all one word, lowercase, kimriddlebarger.com. And you can look under the Blessed Hope Podcast tab. If this perspective on the end times is new to you, or if you want more information, be sure to check out the Amillennialism tab, which is also at the top of the blog. And there you'll find all kinds of essays and audio and even charts from the perspective of Reformed Amillennialism. You can't do eschatology without proper charts, and we've got proper charts, so go check them out. Some good stuff. 
At the Riddle Block, you'll find all sorts of things in addition to information on the end times. There are commentaries on the Reformed Confessions. I'm currently working my way through the first set of doctrine of the Canons of Dort. There are essays on covenant theology, if that's of interest to you. There are 25 years of sermons, which I preached at Christ Reformed Church. Those are linked to my blog. There are a number of book reviews, suggested readings, as well as my musings column, where I have a bit of fun and, well, I have, yeah, a bit of fun, and suggest additional resources. I do want to take a moment to thank you for listening and ask if you find this podcast of value, please tell a friend about this series, The Future. Christians always know other Christians who are interested in eschatology. So, if you're willing, send them to the Riddle blog, and if you like the podcast, well, leave me a review if your podcast feed supports it. That really helps people learn about the Blessed Hope podcast and find it much easier if they're searching for it. We have a growing audience. I'm pleasantly surprised by the number of downloads. So, a hearty thank you for listening and for telling your friends. It, it really works, and I'm grateful. If you have questions about the issues we talk about and discuss uh, during this series in the Blessed Hope, Send them my way using the Contact Me section at the Riddle blog. Now, if I get enough questions that are on topic, I'll do an entire episode made up of questions and answers. So with that, it's back to our discussion of Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of all biblical prophecy. Keeping the distinctions between these two kinds of covenants, covenants of promise and law, in mind, we can return to the principle underlying the two overarching covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, under which these individual covenants of law and promise are to be understood. Now, that's important, and we have to keep this in mind because the covenant of works and the covenant of grace progressively unfold throughout the Old Testament into the New. And the way in which they do so tells us a great deal about how we are to understand the eschatology of the Bible and why we have to keep Jesus Christ at the center. These two overarching covenants enable us to see the continuity which exists between the individual covenants we find in the Old Testament. The covenant God makes with Abraham, and then subsequently with his descendants Isaac and Jacob, and then with Israel are not isolated covenants with no organic connection with what goes before or after, as we see in classical dispensationalism. Rather, the particular covenant God makes with his people are individual and repeated ratifications of the one covenant of grace, which is first promised in Eden, then later ratified with Abraham, who is the father of all those who believe. Seeing the essential continuity between these covenants is important at a number of levels. For one thing, this prevents us from mistakenly seeing the Old Testament as essentially law and the New Testament as essentially gospel. There's law and gospel in both Testaments. And this covenantal structure helps us safeguard the clear teaching of the New Testament that there's only one gospel, Galatians 3.8. There's one plan of salvation, Ephesians 1.4-6. There's one covenant mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, and one common faith, Ephesians 4.4-6. 4, 4 this helps us understand how the individual covenants in the Old Testament are often framed in terms of promise 
while in the new they're framed in terms of fulfillment. And this is a huge problem for dispensationalists who contend that God has two redemptive purposes, one for Israel and for the Gentiles, when the Bible knows nothing about this. The individual covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David are part of a larger covenantal structure, this covenant of grace as it progressively unfolds. This, throughout the Old Testament, foreshadows the new covenant, which is ratified by the blood of Christ, Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 18. The redemptive events found in the Old Testament are unintelligible apart from this covenant structure and the emphasis upon God's promise of a coming Redeemer, who is also the covenant mediator. Therefore, as redemptive history begins to unfold, it's the first Adam, the biological and federal representative of all of humanity, who fails to do as God commanded under the terms of the covenant of works. It was the Lord God who said to Adam, You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll die. Under the terms of this covenant, God demands perfect obedience from Adam, who either obeys the terms of the covenant and receives God's blessing, which is eternal life in a glorified Eden, or else fails to keep the covenant and brings the covenant sanction down upon himself and all those whom he represents, namely, all of humanity. Adam's act of rebellion brings the curse upon the human race. And this covenant of works is never subsequently abrogated in the scriptures. That's a point empirically verified whenever death strikes. I live not far from a really large cemetery. And that cemetery is always busy seven days a week. Death is a reality because the covenant of works and the curse remains. This covenant undergirds the whole of Scripture that tells us that for any of Adam's fallen children to be saved, someone must fulfill all of the terms of the covenant of works without so much as a single infraction, in thought, in deed, or in word. We know this from Matthew 5.48 and 1 Peter 1.16. And since Adam is the federal head of those countless men and women who will, to use the biblical language, spring from his loins, once he disobeys the covenant of works, he plunges the entire human race into guilt and the consequences of sin. And the curse then subjects all of humanity, as well as all of creation, to the bondage and guilt of the power of sin, and God is decreed to redeem both his people and his world. Why is that important for a study of the end times? Because from the very outset, the unfolding drama of redemption is going to be one in which God seeks to rescue men and women from the guilt of Adam's sin, as well as undo the consequences of Adam's act of rebellion upon all of the creation. So this begins with creation in the fall, and how is it going to end? With Christ's return and the new creation, when all of the consequences of the fall and all of the effects of the curse are removed, if true, that leaves no place for a millennial age as understood by either pre- or post-millenarians. The very fact that God demands perfect obedience from his creatures, even from the beginning of the drama of redemption, necessitates the coming of a second Adam who will be obedient unto death, according to Philippians 2.8, and who will become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
the fall necessitates the coming of a Redeemer. A Redeemer who must fulfill the terms of the original covenant works which Adam failed to keep. The Redeemer himself must establish a covenant of grace in which God will deliver Adam's fallen children. Yet he must do so without sacrificing his justice to manifest his love for a lost and fallen race. And that's why the promised Redeemer will die upon a cross, something beyond the realm of imagination for an Old Testament believer looking for a deliverer to come. And that becomes all the more remarkable when we consider that as Jesus dies upon the cross, he's bearing in his own body the very same covenant curses which God showed Abram back in Genesis 15. We know this because Paul appeals to this in Galatians 3 verse 13. When God placed Adam under this covenant, Adam failed to obey. Adam and his family were cast from Eden never to return. And this recurring theme of God making a covenant, the subsequent disobedience of his people, followed by the consequence of the covenant curses, resulting from his people being cast from the land of promise, that resurfaces throughout the Old Testament in this grand drama of redemption. At Mount Sinai, God placed Israel under the law, epitomized by the Ten Commandments, in, in which were codified all of the original requirements of the covenant of works God made with Adam. At Mount Sinai, God placed Israel under the law, epitomized by the Ten Commandments, in which were codified or written down all of the requirements of the original covenant of works that were not publicly stated. The commandments were written upon every human heart by virtue of the fact that all of Adam's children bear the divine image. We know this from Romans 2. But Israel failed to keep the commandments, and that brought the curse down upon the form of being removed from the land. So in his forbearance, God sent his prophets to call a disobedient people to repentance. But Israel repeatedly showed contempt for God by increasing her sins and killing God's messengers. And so, like Adam, Israel the nation came under God's covenant judgment and was cast from the land. This time, God's people were not cast from Eden. They're cast from Canaan, the very land which God had promised to Abram. Adam had failed. Israel had failed. Our Redeemer is still needed, one who would fulfill the covenant of works. As Paul puts it, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man, Romans 8.3. The history of redemption, then, is the progressive unfolding of this covenant of works and this covenant of grace. These two covenants, the essence of covenant theology, is going to resurface throughout the eschatology of the Old Testament and the New It is in the progressive development and unfolding of these two covenants that the person of Jesus, the only mediator between God and that Redeemer promised throughout the whole Old Testament, is revealed. The coming Redeemer is revealed as a second Adam. He is not only the covenant mediator, but the one who, as the new representative of God's people, is also Lord over all of creation. It's the second Adam who ushers in a new creation destroying death and the curse when he rises again from the dead that first Easter morning. And therefore it is in the person work of Jesus Christ that all these diverse themes, covenant, new creation, kingdom of God, all perfectly join together. When the second Adam justifies the many through his act of perfect obedience, 
he does so in terms of a new and better covenant. A covenant in which God will declare that sinners are righteous because the merits of Jesus Christ are imputed to them. And that fulfills all of the promises that God had made to Abraham. As the Apostle Paul puts it in his second letter to the Corinthians, to participate in Christ's reconciling work is likewise to participate in the new creation. And that new creation, which is our eschatological hope for the future, is nothing less than a paradise glorified. It's that new Jerusalem which John depicts as follows. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face. Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4. Once again, God and humanity will dwell together just as they did in Eden, only this time in a new heaven and new earth forever and ever. So as we wrap up then, why this big picture? Why all the time spent looking at these covenants? The connection of the new creation to the covenant of grace is important to keep in mind. The Lord of the future is the one who makes all things new. Jesus Christ, who is also the mediator of the covenant of grace. And therefore, new creation and the covenant of grace are forever joined together in the person work of Christ, who's died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And so this tells us the box top, the basic panorama of redemptive history is creation, fall, and recreation. And creation, fall, and recreation play themselves out in redemptive history in terms of God's dealing with his creatures in terms of the covenants of both Testaments. That tells us Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of all biblical prophecy. This reminds us, it shouts at us, that whenever we discuss the signs of the end that point to the future, we can only do so against the backdrop of a Christ-centered reading of the Bible's expectation of the future, and this is why we don't embrace an Israel-centered reading of the Bible. Christ returns on the last day to do what? To raise the dead, to judge the world, and to usher in a new heaven and earth. There is not a word in the Bible about him returning to establish a millennial kingdom on a halfway redeemed earth in which people marry and procreate and which ends with a revolt against Christ's rule while he's still on the earth sitting on David's throne. Not a word of it. Nor will the city of man, Babylon, be transformed by post-millennial DYIers into a renovated city of man with some of the qualities of the heavenly city coming before the final consummation. The final consummation is tied to Jesus Christ's return, not before, and there's no millennium needed after. If you were raised a dispensationalist as I was, this requires an entirely different way to read and understand the Bible. Never easy. Whenever we encounter something new, especially when we've been told by dispensationalists that the amillennial position is demonic, anti-Semitic, heretical, we tune out the biblical arguments in favor of it. We don't want to hear it. Look, I'm a lifelong New York Yankees fan. I'm enduring a terrible year for my team. But I don't want to hear why I should become a Red Sox fan. You're just not going to talk me out of being a Yankee fan by telling me the Red Sox are having a better year. It doesn't work that way. 
I'm a political conservative, so don't try and talk me into becoming a populist or a progressive. We naturally hang on to our views, and we don't want someone to try and talk us out of them. I get that. I'm as stubborn as the next guy. But when it comes to eschatology, stubbornness isn't a virtue. We need to be like the Bereans and test everything in the light of Scripture. Which view makes the best sense of the whole of Scripture as well as the biblical teaching about the science of the end? Who has the picture on the box top correct? Does a dispensational and premillennial notion give us the proper categories to understand the signs of the end? Is Jesus Christ at the center of the picture in their system? Not really. He's a major player, but he's not the center. Is the postmillennial expectation of an improved city of man before Christ comes back anywhere on that box top? I don't see it. So I find both views wanting. I find both views not accurately portraying the box top to the puzzle through the course of redemptive history, which is non-millenarian. Because our hope for the future is directly tied to the saving work of Jesus Christ, we know where the future is going to end. It's going to end with our Lord's return to wrap up all unfinished business related to his redemption of his people. Jesus Christ now sits at the Father's right hand. He will return on the appointed day to raise the dead judge the world, and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. As we take up the biblical signs of the end in the next episode of the future, yep, we're there, we're going to tackle the signs of the end, we now have the categories to properly understand these signs in light of the box top. We can put them in their biblical framework through the two-age model, the consummation of a present kingdom, and through the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. For those of you hearing this, trusting in Jesus, we await his return when we will receive our promised inheritance. There's no need of fear because the judge has taken away the guilt of our sin. He's given us a perfect righteousness that can withstand the holy gaze of God. For us, the second coming is pure gospel. We long for that day when our Lord will return. But for those who are not Christ, the covenant curses await. That tsunami on the horizon is the judgment of God and its coming. But because Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant, beloved, we need not fear the Lord's return, because our hope is that our redemption draws near. Well, now that we have the proper categories in place, next time we will indeed take up the signs of the end, looking at the signs of the end in general, those signs which apply specifically to the apostles, and finally to those signs of the end which actually herald the second coming of Jesus Christ. But we'll also discuss some of those things which people are looking for which are not properly signs of the end. A rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, a secret rapture, and a utopian geopolitical age before the Lord returns, postmillennialism. So join us next time when we take a detailed look at the science of the end. Maranatha, Lord come.